Good afternoon. So good to see you all today. If you have your Bibles, please get ready to turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Is part of the well-known introductory paragraph of Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And in it, Dickens presents the dichotomous realities of two starkly different cities, London and Paris, during the French Revolution. One city is wealthy, the other city is crumbling. One city is stable, the other city is oppressed. One city is in order, the other is in chaos. In one city there is peace, in the other city there is unrest and turmoil. As such, in our passage this afternoon, two contrasting destinies. Two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two cities are presented. One is free, the other is a slave. One is born through promise, the other is born of the flesh. One is of grace, the other is of the law. One rejoices, the other rages. Paul tells us of the tale of two cities, wrought in biblical history, presented to us as allegory to teach us salvation theology. Well, how was this story, which was over a millennia old, relevant to the Galatians of the first century? And how is this even applicable to us today, over 4,000 years later in the 21st century? Because it tells us of God's unchanging and eternal plan to save a people for himself through the promised offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we might become his sons and daughters. Amen? Amen. We're continuing our study through Galatians in our series, There is One Gospel. And we've been learning that the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, is indeed the one true gospel. There are simply no substitutes. There are no imitations, no duplications, no additions to the true gospel. Otherwise, it is no gospel at all. Add anything to the gospel, it nullifies the gospel. What Christ had achieved by His sinless life, by His substitute death, and by His bodily resurrection and ascension was once and for all. Christ's finished work was the culmination and the fulfillment of God's covenant and the promise made to Abraham that through His offspring, many nations would be blessed. That is, people as wretched and far off as we were, both Jews and Gentiles, have been adopted as sons of God according to the promise justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why the author of the letter, Paul, writes this letter as a corrective to the Christians in the churches of the region of Galatia in an effort to redirect them back to the true gospel as they were being dangerously influenced by a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers 
who are teaching that in order to be a Christian and to be part of the church, the body of Christ, that they must follow Jewish cultural practices of circumcision and other purity and ceremonial laws in order to be truly of God and to be truly saved. And the Apostle Paul, knowing this false teaching was a damnable offense to God and a detriment to the souls of the Galatians, we saw three weeks ago, as Paul began the third main section of the letter, an exhortation to live out the gospel. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul was pouring his heart out, sharing a very emotional and intimate appeal to remind the Galatians who are at the brink of apostasy, at the brink of abandoning their faith. Paul reminds them of the close relationship that they once shared in Christ. And Paul exhorts them, doesn't he, to become as he is, embracing the sufferings of Christ. Well, in our passage, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1, Paul presents to them another biblical and historical and theological appeal for the Galatians to be clear and sure that their identity ought to be rooted in Christ alone and for them to stand firm in the freedom Christ has won and granted to them by faith alone. So from Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through 5, verse 1, I want to share with you three ways Christians can stand firm in the freedom of Christ. Three ways Christians, you and I, believers of Christ, can stand firm in the freedom of Christ. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Point number one, hear God's salvation plan from verses 21 through 25. Hear God's salvation plan. Point number two, from verses 26 and 27, rejoice in God's faithful word. Rejoice in God's faithful word. And point number three, from verses 28 through chapter 5, verse 1, cast out heresy in God's holy church. Hear, rejoice, and cast out. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, whom I love dearly, I pray through this word you would be reminded anew of who you are in Christ Jesus, that you indeed are the true sons and daughters of the Almighty God through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that the words of this message would cause you to stand firm in the freedom of Christ, that it would remind you of the forgiveness that has been granted to you for all your sins in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that it would empower you to approach His throne of grace with confidence and with humility and perfect trust and that He would embolden you to share the message of His glorious salvation to all you meet this week. I pray that I would preach a necessary word of encouragement and hope and strength to you. Guests and visitors, if you are here and you do not identify yourself as a Christian or you are not sure that you are, again, as Brett said, we are so glad that you are here with us today. We have been praying for you. We prayed for you yesterday morning at our early morning prayer. We believe that there is no such thing as mere coincidence, according to the Bible. We believe that God is sovereign, that He is in control of all things. And we've been praying for you that God would lead you here to hear His Word, for you to come to know Jesus Christ as the only true and living Son of God who died and rose again, so that you can be forgiven of your sins, and for you to live in the freedom you have in Him, if you would repent and believe in Him. So without further ado, let's turn to His Word, which can be found on page 974 of the Blue Bibles around you. And as you turn there, let me encourage you to please keep your Bibles open during the entire duration of the message and follow along so that you know the words I share with you are from God's words to encourage you and build you up in Him. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 and on, it says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, 
Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Amen. How can Christians stand firm in the freedom of Christ? Point number one, hear God's salvation plan from verses 21 through 25. As Paul had just expressed his perplexity regarding Galatians' a near abandonment of the true faith in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul now gets to the heart of how the Galatians were influenced by such apparent and obvious and significant false teaching of the Judaizers. Because when it came down to it, they were no longer hearing the Word of God. Look at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You see, in one sentence, Paul uses the word law in two different ways. In addressing you who desire to be under the law, Paul was addressing the Galatians who were listening to the Judaizers and were considering subjecting themselves back to the law, back to the Mosaic law, the rules and the regulations and the prescriptions and the requirements, the do's and don'ts of the Israelites under the Old Covenant. And Paul says to them, do you not listen to the law? This time what Paul was referring to, the law, in the second sense was the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And the understanding is that the Old Testament scriptures itself showed that salvation was through the promised Messiah for all nations. And the subjection to the Mosaic law would be bondage. As Paul pointed out in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You see, the grammatical tense of the word listening is present active indicative. And in large part, the reason for the Galatians' desertion of the true gospel was that they were listening to the words of the Judaizers rather than the words of the Scriptures, the very words of God. As Jeremiah 11.3 in the Old Testament Scriptures also says, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. So again, brothers and sisters, do you not listen to the Scriptures? That's what Paul was challenging of the Galatians. And Paul's challenge rang loud to the Galatian Christians' priorities. 
but it also convicts us today, doesn't it? Do you not listen to the scriptures? What words for us to contemplate on and examine our hearts with? Brothers and sisters, before we go on, the point must be made. Are you listening to the scriptures? Are you listening to the scriptures? Even as you are sitting in this room, are you hearing these words that God desires to speak to you? Or are you distracted by whatever is going on in your life after church, on social media, or whatever sport is playing on TV right now? The challenge is for us to rid of all distractions that robs your attention from hearing God's word right now, this moment. Are you listening to the scriptures? Furthermore, are you hearing the words of God regularly? The truth of God's sovereign salvation and His unchanging character, His overflowing grace, and His new and daily mercies to keep you from stumbling, to recourse you when you are straying, to remind you when struggling. Scripture says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Are you hearing the words of Christ regularly? Paul asks in Galatians 3, 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the words of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you hearing today, right now, this moment with faith? The point is clear. It is through hearing God's word. Faith is strengthened. Prayer grows fervent. Discipleship made urgent. Evangelism emboldened. And the work of the Spirit of God through us apparent and enlivened. It's no surprise to any of us, is it, that biblical illiteracy among Christian evangelicals, those who are supposed to believe in the Bible, is at an all-time high. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high in America. At the same time, anxiety and depression and divisions and tensions across political, racial, and denominational lines are also at an all-time high amongst Bible-believing Christians. Is it a surprise that those two statistics correlate? One theologian said it succinctly, the scandal of biblical illiteracy is our problem. Recently, study shows that only 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church regularly says they read the Bible personally every day. 32% of Bible-believing, church-going Christians only read the Bible every day. Furthermore, one report says in 2022 regarding Bible reading, it is the steepest and sharpest decline on record. The dramatic change shows how closely Bible reading is connected to church attendance. When regular services were interrupted by the pandemic and related health mandates, it impacted not just the corporate bodies of believers, but also individuals at home and their Bible reading. So brothers and sisters, let me challenge you. Let the Word speak to you. Are you guilty of neglecting the reading of God's Word regularly? Think about that. Christians are supposed to be people who stake our lives and eternity on faith in Christ. Yet so many do not read His Word. So many do not listen to His Word. So many do not love His Word. Did you know that in just 12 minutes per day, you could read the whole Bible in a year? 12 minutes per day. In just 9 minutes per day, you can read the entire Old Testament in one year. In just 6 minutes per day, you can read the entire New Testament in just 6 months. 12 minutes, 9 minutes, 6 minutes. Choose whatever's best for you and do it every single day. 
It's one of the reasons why we emphasize as a church the centrality of hearing God's Word through the singing and praying, reading and preaching and seeing through baptism and Lord's Supper of God's Word in our life together as a church at New Covenant Baptist Church. What a better way to whet our appetite for God's Word than through this corporate gathering? I guarantee it. You begin to neglect the corporate gathering, God's primary design for Christians' spiritual growth. You will wither in your love and need for God's Word. So don't disregard it. Prioritize the corporate gathering. Do your best not to miss Sunday service. Guard it with everything. Guard it with your life. Schedule your Sundays around it. Because there is nothing more important than hearing God's Word with God's people and reading and studying God's Word individually for your soul's growth, for your faith to strengthen. Amen? When a Christian is straying, he or she is a Christian not hearing, not reading. When a Christian is straying, he or she is a Christian not hearing or reading. Spurgeon says, the more you read the Bible and the more you meditate upon it, the more you will be astonished by it. He who is but a casual reader of the Bible does not know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the mighty meanings contained in its pages. Nobody ever outgrows Scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. Amen? Man, i got to move on. The reason why Paul emphasizes the listening of the Scriptures is, again, because the Scriptures are sufficient in teaching us salvation offered to us in Christ. The Scriptures are the basis of our theology. The Scriptures point us to Christ. And so Paul, knowing that the Judaizers have been wrongly interpreting and applying the Scriptures to suit their own false teachings and agendas, and in order to claim their self-professed superior status, they are the ones who are the true sons of Isaac and the true sons of Sarah. Paul uses a well-known story of Hagar and Sarah from Genesis 16 and 17 to show how the Judaizers were gravely mistaken. Paul had turned the tables on the Judaizers and shown in Galatians 3 and 4 how only by faith in the promise of Christ are the true offspring of David, didn't he? And now Paul flips the script on them again and goes on to show how true sons of Sarah are also born by faith. So look at verses 22 through 23. It says this. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. As stated, Abraham has already played a significant role in the letter, and now Paul appeals to Abraham's role as the father of two different sons by two different wives to make his point. Here in these verses, no names are mentioned in these verses just yet. Paul focuses only on their social status. One is a slave, the other is free. You see, what Paul is doing is he's setting the stage to unleash a shocker to those who align themselves with the Judaizers' claim that they were the privileged ones who were the sons of the free. You see, it was a common understanding in their day that the Jews were the rightful heirs of Abraham and Sarah and that they were indeed the free sons of them. But notice what's missing in their understanding of redemptive history and the scriptures. Can anyone guess? What was the Judaizers missing in their interpretation and application of the scriptures? Can anyone guess? Christ! Daniel, you get a free coffee today for me. Come to my house, I'll make you a latte. Christ! A Christ-centered understanding of scriptures was missing. 
a biblical theology, an understanding of scriptures as God's one grand narrative was missing. Hence their legalism, hence their false religion. And so Paul begins to explain the scriptures in the way it was supposed to be. Listen, Paul was not teaching anything new by any means. Paul is teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is teaching from Genesis, the first book of the Pentateuch. Paul is showing this was God's plan of salvation from the very beginning. Look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul is using a well-known event in Israel's history. He's using the event of actual people in history as allegory. He uses only historical facts that are germane to the figurative meaning that he would point out. Meaning, you guys all know if you read scriptures, Genesis account, that Abraham actually had eight sons. Six of them by Keturah, referenced in Genesis 25 verses 1-2. through A wife whom Abraham married after Sarah's death. If you're wondering at this point why Abraham had two too many wives, remember what Brett taught last week about how some things in the Old Testament are descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, this is not an example to be followed, but a description of the ways things were in the pagan culture and how Abraham was called out from such a setting to form a holy people prescribed by God's holy word. Now, the word allegory is interesting here. Because as some Bible scholars would argue, Paul's use of the story of Hagar and Sarah is actually typology. Where there is a historical connection between the type and its anti-type. A foreshadowing and a fulfillment typology. But the illustration is complex. Because it's hard to see how Hagar functions as a historical type. A foreshadowing of the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Now, an allegory, which can be defined as assigning a hidden or symbolic parallel meaning, a story in which specific people, places, and events stand for deep spiritual truths. Perhaps you know the most famous allegory in the Christian world, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The characters in the book have names like Christian and Faithful and Hopeful, and they travel to places like the Doubting Castle and the Hill of Difficulty. And Bunyan, rather obviously, was not writing history or geography, but was telling a story to make a spiritual point. That's allegory. Well, the story of Abraham's sons is not quite that kind of allegory, because again, their story is actually history. Isaac and Ishmael were real sons born to real mothers, Sarah and Hagar, respectively. And I think this is why even New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says and rightly identifies the text as typological allegory. There are elements of both, but it's not quite either or. But the important thing is this. The takeaway is this. Paul recognized that the history of Abraham's sons had something significant to say about the way God always consistently deals with his people. It shows us God's consistent character and nature and teaches us timeless lessons applicable to us even today. More importantly, their story is about the gospel of God's free grace. Simply, the verses state this. Ismael is Abraham's son of the slave woman, Hagar. Ismael was born of the flesh. He was born out of natural means. 
Hagar and Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah's efforts to add to the promise of God that Abraham's offspring would be as many as the number of the stars back in Genesis 15. But you know the story, right? After years of waiting on the Lord as Abraham and Sarah were aged in years, Sarah way beyond and past the years of childbearing into her 70s and 80s, Hagar was their reasonable and commonsensical solution to speed up or help or to accomplish God's promise made to them. You can read more about it, as I said, in Genesis 16. But what is clear is this. God needs no help from Abraham and Sarah, nor Hagar. God was only readying Abraham and Sarah to see the impossible, the supernatural, a son of promise, uh, to be born only by the divine power of God in order to display His glory and to point us to a greater Son who would be born solely by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? As such, Paul says the two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, being children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar represents the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of works, a covenant in which by no one will be justified, a covenant only given to the Israelites as a guardian to imprison them, to guard them, to protect them, to help them and direct them and discipline them until the coming of faith, until Christ would be revealed in order that we all might actually be fully and finally justified by faith. Now, the shocker comes in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. You see, Paul, by relating Hagar to Mount Sinai and to Arabia, which was in proximity to the location where Moses received the laws which the Jews related Hagar and Arabia with the sons of the Ishmaelites, the Gentiles, and not themselves, Paul clarifies and Paul exegetes the biblical truth in light of God's grand narrative of redemption in a Christ-centered perspective and makes a dramatic reversal in the interpretation of Hagar-Sarah analogy. That Hagar equals Mount Sinai, which equals present Jerusalem. Present Jerusalem, those who were still bounded by and under the Mosaic law, which equal slavery. And this was a mind-blowing shocker to them. In other words, those who claim loyalty to the laws are Hagar's sons. They are Ishmael's, sons of slavery, spiritual Gentiles. And Paul was showing, according to the scriptures, it is the Judaizers who are the spiritual slaves, the sons of Hagar, Ishmaelites, not the free sons of the promise. Are you following? Are you guys with me? I'm getting excited, but I hope you are too. Do you see why it's so important to not merely hear the words superficially, but to actually understand it holistically, biblically, and theologically? Judaizers were the ones who claimed to know the word, but had no idea of its true meaning. Hence, they had no true grasp of God's salvation plan, clear from the very beginning. This is not rocket science. This is truth made clear by God's unchanging word and by His Spirit revealed only to the true offspring of Abraham, those who can cry out, Abba, Father, those who are no longer slaves, but sons and heirs through God by the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. So brothers and sisters, again, are you listening? Are you listening? Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it and live it. Which leads us to the second point. How can Christians stand firm in the freedom of Christ? Point number two, rejoice in God's faithful word from verses 26 and 27. Brothers and sisters, hearing God's word ought to lead us to rejoicing. Amen? You ought to get excited about hearing God's word and reading God's word. Look at verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Paul contrasts the earthly Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, those who lived under the law, present Jerusalem who was opposed to the gospel of grace and hence bondaged to works, still under a curse. Paul contrasts that Jerusalem to the Jerusalem above. Jerusalem below is slavery. Jerusalem above is freedom. And it is this city, not Sarah, be careful, it is this city, not Sarah, that's important. It is Jerusalem above that stands as the mother of believers in Jesus Christ. Believers are the citizens of God's heavenly city. Jerusalem above, though similar in name, is an entirely different city, isn't it? An antithesis, a polar opposite to the present earthly Jerusalem. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the heavenly Jerusalem is described in Hebrews 12 and Revelation 3.12 and 21 verse 2. The new heavenly Jerusalem is a heavenly city that awaits believers. Let me read you from just one verse from Revelation 21.2 which says this. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the Jerusalem above is the eschatological, the future Jerusalem, which will be composed of all past, present, and future believers of Christ that has reached down to the present evil age to give us a foretaste of the future age to come in the already but the not yet reality of God's kingdom. That's what we get to experience, brothers and sisters, when we gather together on Sundays as God's congregation of the redeemed. We get a tiny glimpse of what heaven will be like when we gather together Sunday after Sunday to increase our hope and our expectation for that heavenly city. A gathering of people of all nations, people, tribes, and tongue redeemed and united as one where no more sufferings and sorrows are present, where in our singing and in our worshiping Him, no lie would be found in our mouths. Eternal and endless joy with Him where all of our deepest and greatest wants will be satiated and satisfied to an eternal degree. That is the taste we get when we gather together to sing of Him and His grace and His glorious gospel. Amen? That city is coming. That city is here already, but not yet to the fullest degree. We get a foretaste of that amazing truth. This is why in the middle of his allegory, Paul quotes a prophecy from Isaiah 54.1, which calls her citizens, citizens of the Jerusalem above, to rejoicing. Look at verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What an incredible prophecy. The connection between the prophecy of Isaiah and the previous verse is Sarah's barrenness. Think about it. It was God's sovereign will. 
Brothers and sisters, think about that. It was God's sovereign will that Sarah, with all of her sins and all of her faults, would be barren in order that through her the promise that God had made to Abraham would be fulfilled. The context of Isaiah 54 is when the Israelites are returning from exile. Israel is like a barren woman whose children have been lost to exile. But God promises to return to her, to the land, where she will multiply and prosper. And although Israel's exile is compared to a wife abandoned by her husband, the Lord, because of their adultery and idolatry, the Lord says He will have compassion on Israel again. And He will establish a new covenant, a covenant of peace and grace. And Jerusalem as a city will be made more precious and more beautiful. And no one will be able to touch her because He is protected by God. Again, a great reversal uh, envisioned by Isaiah, by God's intervention. Barrenness will turn to fruitfulness. Despair will turn to joy. And desolation will turn to blessing. And that is why Jerusalem is commanded to break forth and cry aloud, though they are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. What amazing news. What amazing word. As Shriner says, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise has become reality. Not in the physical return of Israel from exile, but in the conversion of Gentile Christians in a place like Galatia. The law did not produce God's children, for those under the law were enslaved by sin. The law puts to death, but the gospel proclaimed by Paul brings freedom. Further, the gospel produces true children of the Lord, children of the promise like Isaac. Therefore, Gentiles of Galatia should exalt with joy because they are the fulfillment of the promise. They are the true sons of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news that you will ever hear. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. By perfect obedience to the law, by His sinless life, by His substitute death on the cross, by His resurrection, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. So that we are no longer slaves, but sons and heirs through God, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Amen? Guests and visitors, if you are here, and again, if you do not know yourself to be a Christian or are not sure that you are, I wonder if you understand that if you are not a child of God, you are not free, but you are a slave. You are in bondage to the elementary principles of the world as according to Galatians 4.3. If you're honest, uh, it is the most basic things of this earthly life that entraps us, doesn't it? You can be the most intelligent person. You can be the most richest person. You can be the most handsome or, or beautiful person. The most powerful, strongest person physically. But ask yourself, can any of those things give you true lasting peace? True lasting happiness? Can any of those things keep you from cancer or from freak accidents, from relational brokenness, from addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs? Can any of those things prevent you from loneliness and emptiness, from meaninglessness, and ultimately from death? No, they can't. True freedom, true peace, not just some abstract, out there, spiritual, fluffy things. Yes, tangible joy and tangible peace is available and offered only in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. 
John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. This is the promise of God. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to know true freedom, Repent of your sins today. That means to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Repentance means turning from trusting in the world or in yourself and turning to Christ. And believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. For you. And trust Him with your whole life today and tomorrow and the next day. Keep believing. Again, not in some abstract way. If you call yourself a Christian, commit to a local church body here or some other gospel preaching church. Don't be a Christian just in name only. Don't be a nominal Christian. Be a Christian who is accountable to others. Don't just come to church. Be the church. That's what a Christian is, a member of God's body. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, please come and talk to me or any of the elders at the close of service at the doors. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what a word of encouragement and hope and promise these verses are to us, is it not? Christians are ones who can rejoice in the midst of sufferings and sorrows. Christians are ones who have ultimate and true hope. And God has made a way that though here on earth we may be barren and fruitless and desolate and rejected in Christ, we have final victory. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem that is above. Amen? What trials are hindering you today from rejoicing in Christ? You look at your life and you lack joy. What trials and what, uh, what, what things of this earth is hindering you from rejoicing in Him today? Let me challenge you. Are you listening to the words of God? Perhaps it is God's purpose for you that you may be in lack today in order that He can satisfy you wholly and thoroughly in Him only. In Christ, we have a reason to rejoice. In Christ, we have final and true freedom. His faithful word reminds us that Christ has come and that He is coming again. As the late Pastor Tim Keller says, if Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if He really got up and walked out and was seen by hundreds of people and He talked to them, whatever you are worried about right now, whatever you are afraid of, everything is essentially going to be okay. Because you have to remember, we're not just talking about a resurrected people. You have to remember, this is where Christianity is unique. We're talking about a resurrected world. Other religions talk about immaterial heaven, an immaterial resurrection of our souls. But Christianity talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And because of that, everything will be okay. We are its citizens. Hallelujah. Amen. I pray that this is a reason for rejoicing for you. This is freedom that nothing in this world can take away. This is an inheritance guarded and kept in heaven for you by the power of God. But there's more encouragement in our passage, which moves us to our final point. How can we stand firm in the freedom of Christ? Point number three, cast out heresy in God's holy church. From verses 28 and on, it says this. In verses 28 and 29. Now you, brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Paul uses the emphatic you in verse 28. He is saying, for those of you who are still struggling to believe, you, yes you, you who are at the brink of abandoning your faith, 
you who are overwhelmed by doubt and sin, you who are struggling in suffering and sorrows, you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. What he's saying is you are a miracle of God. You are not born or reborn by human efforts. Sure, I get it. Your parents had you. But God was sovereign even over that. I mean, literally. The odds of you being born is some one in 400 quadrillion chance, scientifically. You did not contribute a single thing to come into this world. And you did not and will not contribute anything to your salvation whatsoever. You are Isaac. You are God's handiwork, His masterful work to display His matchless glory. Hallelujah. That is you. But know this. Because you are, the world knows, and you are the world's enemy. As Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And hence, persecution will come. Verse 29 is a reference to Genesis 21, 9, when Ishmael mocks Isaac. And Paul says, just as it was back then, so it is now also. You see, he who is born according to the flesh has and will continue to persecute him who was born according to the flesh, which is the reason why even today, literally thousands of believers are still executed every day because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. Part of Paul's application is for us to know it, be ready for it, prepare for it. Persecution is here and is coming and will come to the greater degree. But I love Paul's great insight about it. Look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, this is a very interesting and unusual citation from the Hagar and Sarah account, I admit, from Genesis 21.10, where Sarah, perhaps from envy, instructs Abraham to cast out this slave woman Hagar with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not shall not be heir with my son Isaac these words are ironic as you know the story because if you read the Genesis 16 and 17 account it was actually Sarah's idea initially for Abraham to sleep with Hagar the slave woman in order that they may have a son to call their own but now in Genesis 21 10 Sarah sounds almost hypocritical uh, jealous, envious, regretful perhaps, and understandably right. Now that the true son was born as promised, he was to be the rightful heir of Abraham's blessing. And for Isaac to be the right recipient, Ishmael could have no part in it whatsoever. So of course we see in the Genesis account that although this entire event happens because of Abraham and Sarah's lack of trust and lack of patience in God keeping His word and their effort to add to God's promise, we see that God has mercy on Hagar and Ishmael and blesses them and protects them. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter doesn't change. In order for Isaac to receive the promised blessing of God, in order for God's covenant to be preserved through Isaac's lineage, the lineage of promise, the first son had to be cast out. The first son had to be cast out in order for the true son to be the rightful heir. In the first Adam, there is bondage. In the second Adam, there is liberty. That's what Paul is pointing us to. Brothers and sisters, Paul asks, but what does the scriptures say? In a letter painstakingly driving the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, in faith alone. Listen, Sarah's words 
are justified, aren't they? A thousand years later, they are justified. Not as words of jealousy and envy, but as words of Scripture. Words of God's instructions to the Galatians who allowed false brothers to creep in unnoticed. And Paul says, it is God who says, it is Scripture who says, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This is the reason why, as a local church, we are called to guard the who and what of the gospel. This is why we believe, according to the scriptures, we believe in regenerate church membership. Those who are born again by the Spirit are members of this congregation. This is why we do not believe, as some do, that the New Testament community is a mixed community made of believers and non-believers. This is why we exercise meaningful membership, the front door, and church discipline as the back door. And this is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis as remembrance and examination of our purity and unity to God and to one another. Is it a coincidence that Sarah is one of the two women named among the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11? Of course not. Her inclusion, of course, may be surprising when we consider the Old Testament account of Sarah where her faith does not seem whatsoever strong faith. But here, she is in this verse held up as a model of faith because she relied on the promise of God and came to know the fulfillment of it when her laughter of doubt turned into laughter of rejoicing. There's so much more application I can give there, but let me conclude. The point is this. God does not save a perfect people. God makes weak, broken, doubting, sinful, anxious, impatient, depressed people into believers by His Word. And He invites us into His family as citizens of Jerusalem above. That's verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Did you notice Paul shifts from addressing the Galatians in the second person plural, you, to now the first person plural, we, he is identifying himself with the Galatians whom he still considered brothers and sisters of the faith if they would hear and rejoice and cast out heresy and cling to the true faith. As Tim Keller says again, your identity in Christ is received, not achieved. Your identity is received, not achieved. Hence Paul's concluding exhortation to the Galatians to live out the gospel. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not again submit to the yoke of slavery. Brothers and sisters, Christ died and rose again for your freedom. Stand firm in it. Though we live in this city, may we not take our gaze off of that city. Though we are persecuted in this city, may we eagerly await for that city. Though we are suffering in this city, May we ever be secure in that heavenly city. Hear about it over and over and over again and do not forget it. Rejoice in it. He is the one who will keep His word and no one else. So guard it. Protect it. Commit to it until the day He returns to us and we are joined with Him and all who are citizens of the new Jerusalem. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your promised word which has been faithful throughout all generations. Father, through the story of Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael, Father, we learn that you don't call a perfect people your children, your sons and daughters, but you call a weak, broken, needy people and make them believers of you. 
that you are the faithful God, that you are the one who completes the work begun in us. What a privilege, what a joy to rejoice in that truth that we have been made new. We've been made alive because of you. We cling to you. We praise you. We worship you. We rejoice in you in this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.